electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Is stronger-than-expected economic data throwing the Fed's rate-cut timeline into question? The 10-year yield just below 4% again. The Nasdaq trying to avoid its worst losing streak in over a year. And now the MAG-7 are being called the LAG-7. We'll debate if this is bad news for all stocks or just the high flyers. The promise of AI has been helping tech stocks over the past year, but it also might help revitalize downtown San Francisco. We'll talk to a real estate developer making a billion-dollar bet on the Golden City. Plus, the Stanley Cup, not hockey. No, you ladies know what I'm talking about. It's the status water bottle of teen and tween girls. The hottest gift this holiday season. It's exploded in market share, and that means trouble for Yeti. According to Canaccord, we've got that story coming up. Let's start with today's market action, though. Over to Dom Chu for the numbers, Dom. You know, Kelly, those Stanley Cups, they're not waterproof or spill-proof completely. You have to buy attachments for that. So there's another tip for you guys out there. Anyway... Kelly uh, spoke about the Magnificent Seven. Well, it's trying to find a little bit of footing so far today, and that's what's helping at least a little bit of the kind of tepid moves that you're seeing within the S&P 500. Just about flat on the session, 47.08 the last trade there. The Dow Industrial is the leader, up about one quarter of 1%, 37,538, up about 107 points. And the Nasdaq Composite, just down about one to two-tenths of a percent, 14,571.20. A big part of that story is... The big mega cap technology trade, communication services. Now, within that magnificent seven, the five biggest stocks out there, the so-called trillion dollar club, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon and NVIDIA. All of them right now showing some signs of trying to stabilize. NVIDIA is actually up one and a half percent. Apple's down about one percent again. Again, today, because of another analyst downgrade, this time from Piper Sandler, who's citing some concerns from a macro perspective. For Apple in the first half of the year, it follows Barclays downgrade earlier this week. So those shares working on a four-day losing streak. Microsoft was up solidly up earlier today. It's now just about flat on the session, down marginally. Remember, Microsoft and Apple could be on the verge of flipping that market cap leadership in the, in the, in the overall marketplace. But keep an eye on that mega cap tech trade. And then the stock of the day, another Dow component out there, which is Walgreens Boots Alliance. It actually came out and reported quarterly numbers that were good, better than expected on revenues, better than expected on profits. But it cut its quarterly dividend from 48 cents all the way down to 25 cents because it's trying to maintain, it says, its long-term balance sheet strength also preserves some cash for flexibility down the line. Those shares down 7% right now. So an interesting story developing there with regard to the accentuating the negative on the dividend side of things as opposed to the positives on the quarterly results. Walgreens Boots Alliance, a big decliner today. Kel, I'll send things back over. Yeah, and still only taking a few points off the doubt. So small now. Dom Banks. So is the worst behind us or is it yet to come? One of my next guests says we've already seen a series of mini recessions across different sectors, while the other says a broad but shallow contraction is likely ahead of us. Let's talk about it now with Julie Beal, chief market strategist at Kane Anderson Rednick and a CNBC contributor, and Jay Bryson, Wells Fargo's chief economist. Welcome to you both. Jay, are you the one anticipating a downturn still? 
Yeah, so Kelly, if I would say it's going to be a modest downturn. I mean, I, I think anyone would stress that. I mean, I don't think we're looking at a major pullback here in the economy, but we are starting to see some cracks in terms of the consumer spending. And, you know, the Fed is still in restrictive territory. I think that puts some headwinds on growth, um, you know, in the coming quarters. All right. So what would you say that implies for, you know, not that it's it's where you kind of have to make your calls, Jay, but so those expecting Fed rate cuts and, and maybe the March time frame, are they right? But are they right because of the slowing economy? You know, Kelly, I think March is a little bit premature at this point. I just, you know, if you're looking, through, reading through the minutes of the January FOMC meeting the, the other day, I just don't think they're at that point yet. I mean, I think something would really have to fall apart in the economy where you see a rate cut actually in March. Could we see one in May? Yeah, I think that's very uh, possible to see one in May. But, but March at this point, I think, seems a little bit premature for me. But once they start moving, you know, whether it's in May or wherever, you know, I think they start to move pretty, uh, pretty quickly. Um, at that point to bring rates down. Julie, what do you think is going on with the market here? Is it reassessing rate cut? I mean, is it because the data is better than expected? Is it because it's worse than expected? Is it just everyone was on one side of the boat and now we're going to the other side? I mean, notably, the 10-year yield has moved up. What do you think is going on here as we turn the, the page on the year? I think looking at the minutes, it's pretty clear that rate cuts in March, I agree, are, are pretty unlikely. If something really falls apart, that's probably going to be what drives a rate cut. And that's not good for equity markets, right, broadly speaking. But I also think that a lot of the buying that happened at year end was pretty indiscriminate. It's sort of like when you're a target, you know, on December 23rd and you're just trying to find something for, you know, your cousin who you don't even really like that much. It's just buy whatever you can. And now I think people are recognizing that they need to be a little bit more discerning, particularly if interest rates remain a little bit higher and longer than we're expecting. And so I think people are looking back at what they own. And I think it's really the time to be very careful and selective about quality. It's so hard to predict what's going to happen. Think of where the Fed governors are right now for 2025. You have one of them at five and a half and you have one at two and a half, hmm. right? So they're going to they're going to be very data dependent, and there's not really broad consensus on where rates are going with them. And I think, Julie, I tend to think of you as looking for like idiosyncratic stocks. So where are you on the MAG7 or the LAG7 or whatever, whatever we want to call them? You know, I, I think there's opportunity still within those businesses. Part of the reason why they did so well is it, they, ha they have much greater clarity on their ability to execute on the vision for AI. And so to me, it makes sense. But I wouldn't be overexposed to those businesses. I think within, within sectors within the economy, you want broad-based exposure, but you just want to own the very, very best businesses. And so in tech, the MAG7, LAG7, whatever, those are the best businesses. But if you go down towards small cap and mid cap, you'll see across industries, you really want to own the market leaders. I think those will protect you and they'll still probably participate in the upside going forward. Jay, what did you make of the minutes yesterday? And are we going to look back at those as kind of a turning point where if the Fed meeting helps support the rally into year end, do the minutes kind of quench, quench that somewhat? Yeah, you know, I, I think so. I mean, I, at this point, uh, you know, Kelly, I, th I think they are, they're, they're very much in a pivoting sort of mode, right? And, and I think that, you know, the question is, how fast do they pivot? And again, you know, what Julie was talking about, what I was talking about earlier, it's just hard to see them pivoting between now and March, unless something just completely falls apart. I, you know, I, the probability of another rate hike from here, I think, is very, very low. The question is, how fast do they move? And I think they're going to take their time. But again, once they do start to move, then I think they start to move pretty quickly, as you know, they have done historically. What about the argument for victory cuts? You know, the Dave Zervos line, but I think a lot of people are implicitly acknowledging, acknowledging this and they say, just move the Fed funds rate down in line with inflation so that you're not accidentally tightening things more than more right now. 
Oh, I, I, I clearly agree with that um, in terms of the real Fed funds rate. If you look at the real Fed funds rate, depends on what you want to deflate it with in terms of inflation, but it's, it's going to be roughly about 2% right now. That's really restrictive right now. And as inflation continues to recede going forward, just to keep up with that, the Fed is going to have to be cutting rates. And if you want to start to move back towards neutral, if we start to see slower economic growth in the first half of the year, which I think we will, then you, you, start to, you have to move back towards neutral. And so so whether you want to call it victory rate cuts or, or whatever there, just in order to keep the real Fed funds rate from going up further from here, they do have to be bringing the nominal rate down. Right. They should be doing that now. And so I'm just curious, why can't they make the base, make the case for cutting in March? Not because of the, what we've seen in past cycles, weakening economy and problems and that kind of thing, but simply to just make sure that they're not tightening. Well, that, that's a very good question, uh, Kelly, and I'm sure that question is being asked by at least some members around the FOMC uh, table. But, you know, when you read those minutes, they're just, they're not, there's not a consensus there. There's some folks there who still think that inflation, you know, it is above target at this point. The question is, how fast does it come down? And what they don't want to do is they don't want to be cutting at this point only to see inflation stall out at around 3%. Um, and so I think they're going to, you know, drag their feet. Uh, but then once they start to move, I think they're going to find out they are going to be behind the curve. And at that point, they're going to have to start to move pretty quickly. Interesting. And, and yesterday, David Bonson, Julie, told us he thought we could see 100 to 200 basis points of Fed rate cuts this year and kind of a similar outlook. He also thinks the market's going to be range bound for years, maybe, because valuations are at 20 times right now. Just curious what you make of that discussion, kind of where you come down on that. Yeah, I, you know, I think if you look at valuations, broadly speaking, you know, you saw a real re-rating happen within small caps towards the end of the year, but they're still trading at a pretty nice discount. So that's probably the place where I would be looking. You know, I think my boss always says, you know, it's not a stock market, it's not a stock market, it's a market of stocks. And you have to look at each on a kind of individual basis. And so particularly when you're looking in small cap, I think there's lots of opportunities. And what I've noticed is that you're not really paying for quality anymore. Everything is kind of broadly speaking on a pretty even keel. And so you can find better attractive pricing right now on quality. And that's an ideal market for a longer term investor like us. Like you said, you guys tend to do more stock picks. You've got Molis in there. Uh, you've got Market Access. You've got Aspen Technologies. Uh, so it sounds like because the, the small cap pick generally is much more controversial, uh, but it's, uh, you're not buying that index blindly. Yeah, I, I really think that you cannot be passively investing in small cap. There's just there's too many businesses that are non-earners or that have a lot of leverage and that right. are very economically sensitive. And so the three businesses, you know, Molis really has the potential to see any kind of improvement in the M&A cycle. It's going to have a meaningful impact to earnings. Aspen is just kind of a steady eddy, so well protected from outside forces with some opportunities for grid scale investment. Um, and market access, you know, as we see a little bit more volatility happening in fixed income, a lot of us are really concerned about what's going on in private credit. Mm -hmm. This is one of the biggest, deepest markets. And I think it actually will really shine if that's if that comes to be. You think market access will shine if there's trouble in private credit? Yeah, I think you, if you once you see that there starts to be dislocation in private credit, it sort of impacts the rest of credit. And so where you really want to be is in the deepest pools of capital, right? Mm. That's where you're going to be looking for the most amount of liquidity. And so players that can provide the deepest, most structurally protected pools of capital, 
those are the ones that I think will really flourish longer term. That is the first stock pick I've heard predicated off of the private credit problem, which is controversial in and of itself. I love it. Julie, uh, Jay, thank you both so much today. We appreciate your time, Julie Beal and Jay Bryson. Let's pivot to the home builders now, one of the groups that had been leading the market in this recent run-up, but also trading lower to start the year. UBS downgraded Pulte this morning, although the firm remains positive on the builders overall. And some of the products saying Armstrong World Industries in particular could be a bright spot. That name got an upgrade to neutral. Shares of both Armstrong and Pulte showing some gains today. Here to explain is UBS analyst John Lavallo. John, it's good to see you again. Welcome. Hey, Kelly. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Broadly speaking, because we, we, I do think history is repeating itself a little bit here. We often hear that home builders kind of lead on the Fed pivot, uh, and it seems like that has been true this time around. But are we running out of steam there? No, we don't think so. I think that the dynamics out there are still incredibly favorable for the public home builders. There's very little existing home supply. Demand is still resilient. The demand that's out there is being funneled towards the new construction market. And here, the public builders are just gaining tremendous amount of market share. And I think that if you think about their balance sheets, the market share gains and their ability to generate cash consistently throughout a cycle and their better discipline, you can make a real argument for why these stocks should not trade at a significant discount to to the S&P 500, which is one of the things that that we sort of contemplated within the context of this note. All right. So given that positivity, generally speaking, why does Pulte get a downgrade today? It's a good question. Look, we still have 19% upside in the shares. And so it's not you know, a death knell by, by, by any means. In fact, you know, the call is predicated on our belief that some of the more spec-oriented builders, so builders that are a little bit more volume-focused, have already seen more of a margin sort of normalization, if you will, back to levels that are more consistent with pre-COVID, but we still believe they'll be higher by, call it, 200 basis points or so. Pulte, given a little bit longer of a build cycle, a little bit more of a focus on build-to-order, we still think that there's a little bit more margin reversion that's going to happen over the next couple of years. Now, keep in mind, Pulte's margins are going to be best in class, and so are their returns. We just think that directionally, the way that's trending uh, and the fact that maybe they're not quite as focused on you know, targeting some of that first-time entry-level uh, buyers with, mm. with the volume that some of the other players are, on a relative basis, that was the call. If you think they might face some profit margin pressures, are those coming from the top line or the bottom line or both? It's a good question. I, I think, look, I mean, from an incentive standpoint, we'll, we'll see what happens with rates, but all the builders are offering incentives which are going to impact ASP or, or, or the top line, but they're also going to impact margin. And you couple that with the fact that, look, I mean, land costs are, are not getting any cheaper, nor is labor, nor materials for that matter. I mean, lumber is going to fluctuate, but in general, cost pressures are going up. Now, to counter that, the builders have become much more efficient much more efficient in how they're building homes, they're offering less options, and they're just doing things much cleaner than they have in the past. So they can offset a lot of this. But there are there is there are no shortage of, of cost pressures in the market. All right. So why did you have a sell on Armstrong uh, just real quickly before we go? And why move that one a little bit higher today back to a neutral? Yeah, no, I appreciate it. So look, I think for Armstrong, it's a commercial ceiling uh, tile manufacturer, uh, and it's focused because of that, on many areas of the market that were slower. Office is a good example of that. Now, we're not making a big call that Office is going to recover by any means. Hmm. But what we are saying is that, look, these stock, these stocks from the commercial sector side, and, and Armstrong in particular, are probably going to start discounting a cyclical trough here at some point. And on top of that, the technology investments and the growth investments that they have really should keep them best in class, leading market share, price taker. Um, it, it's, it's a good position stock. I think this is the right time to sort of pivot away from that sell. 
I'm just taking a look at the five-year chart to see if it is a you know reverse correlated to work from home or anything like that. I mean, like everybody else, it ran up in late 2021. It has been struggling lately, but has had a big run from kind of the middle of last year until now. And do you think that is on this move towards people coming back in more or less full time? You know, I, I wouldn't go that far, honestly, Kelly. I think that it's more of uh, the fact that if you think about the residential cycle, generally speaking, the the commercial cycle is going to lag that by 12 to 18 months, maybe a little bit longer. So I think we're starting to see the investment community start sniffing around for a bottom in that overall cycle. And again, on a company-specific standpoint, they're doing a lot of things to sort of support growth from a, you know, particularly from a price and mix standpoint, All which right. is pretty encouraging. John, thank you. It's good to check in with you. We appreciate your time. Thank you. John Lavallo with UBS. Speaking of housing, homeowners are sitting on trillions of dollars worth of home equity. And as interest rates start to fall a bit, maybe they can finally tap into it. Diana Olick has the details and what it could mean for the economy could be a big one, Diana. It could, Kelly. Yeah, current homeowners are sitting on roughly $10.6 trillion in home equity that they can access while still keeping 20% equity in their homes. And that's just 3% short of the 2022 peak. They are not, however, tapping it because mortgage rates have been so high. So the cost of taking it out is higher. Just 0.41% of total equity available at the beginning of Q3 was actually withdrawn during the quarter, according to ICE Mortgage Technology. That's less than half the average withdrawal rate from 2010 to 2021, that is the years leading up to the Fed's latest tightening cycle. So what does that mean in real cash? Well, it's equivalent to $54 billion in so-called missing withdrawals during that quarter that might have otherwise stimulated the broader economy. And that calculation is due to ICE's Andy Walden. Over the last 18 months, he says $250 billion in lost spending. So people aren't taking the money out because interest rates are so high, but rates are now moving lower. And if they move significantly lower, that could change. As it is, cash out refinances make up more than 90 percent of the latest refi activity. Refis are very low with those borrowers who do do that withdrawing a record 104,000 dollars on average. That's up from an average 65,000 dollars just two years ago. So, Kelly, there's a lot of potential there. There. Keep thinking of, uh, of the commercial. They're sitting on a gold mine and maybe they can finally <laughs> tap it because we do have to see those rates come down. They're, they're considerably high. You know, people will use that equity if they have to, but they would especially use it if it was much more cheap to do so. Absolutely. And it's also because home equity lines of credits and second loans are even higher rates than a current first year mortgage and first lien mortgage and a first mortgage. Generally, most people have three and four percent rates, so they don't want to trade up and do a cash out refi. So that's why those second liens being more expensive. If those should come down, that's going to be enticing. Real quickly, I should have asked this earlier, but am I mistaken or did a lot of companies actually get out of the HELOC business in recent years? You know, is this oh, yeah. going to be well, easy there was no for business. people? Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Are they going to get back into it? You get out of it because it doesn't exist. I mean, look, refinances are down significantly um, and had been as interest rates rose. They're starting to come back now. We're just seeing in the latest mortgage application data that refinance volume is popping back. But the question is, will it be enough to entice people to go into the home equity if they have to do that second loan? Yeah, very good. Diana, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Our Diana Olick. Coming up, the Stanley Cup craze sweeping the nation. It's finally hitting Wall Street, and one analyst sees Yeti tumbling as a result. Yeti shares are already 50% below their 2021 peak. He'll tell us how much more downside could be ahead. 
Plus, we've checked in with developers from the Big Apple to Vice City and beyond. And now we're heading west to San Francisco to speak with the owner of the iconic Transamerica Pyramid about his billion-dollar bet on the Bay Area and what the next chapter of commercial real estate will look like. As we head to break, here's a glance at the markets. The Dow's up 126 points. Uh, pressure, uh, pressure on the Nasdaq in particular today, which is trying to break a long losing streak. The S&P hanging on to a four-point gain. And look at the 10-year yield, just ticking back above 4%. That's certainly an area to watch. We're back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Yeti are down more than 10% this week, and it's not being helped by a downgrade to hold from Canaccord Genuity today. The firm is citing a huge ramp up in competition from the brand Stanley. Canaccord flagged it as a Yeti disruptor last June, but today said they even underestimated their staying power. Those 40-ounce water bottles, maybe you've seen them. I was going to bring one, but no one would part with theirs. They're incredibly popular among Gen Z and Gen Alpha girls. That's the even younger generation. So much so that the launch of a limited edition Target Starbucks version has led to huge lines and even chaos at Target's nationwide yesterday. These cups retail for about $50, but summer selling for more than $200 on resale sites like eBay and Poshmark. Here to discuss is Canaccord Genuity's Brian McNamara. Brian, it's great to have you. Welcome. Likewise. Thanks very much for having me, Kelly. I only realized about a week ago the Stanley Tumblr, and now I literally see it everywhere. So just explain how disruptive this product has been. Yeah, so we launched on Yeti uh, when I joined Canaccord Genuity in, in November of 2022. And to be frank, we were, it wasn't even on our radar yet. Um, it actually came to our radar where, where we do these store checks with Dick Sporting Goods, uh, Yeti's largest wholesale partner. And the best part about doing primary work like that is you go in, do you know, expecting to uncover, you know, affirm or disconfirm some conclusion you 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 know, you expected. Um, and the best part about that this day, this research is coming up with uh, the the unprompted or the volunteered information. And so in our April checks, Stanley came up unprompted by a whole host of, of Dick's store associates. And we're like, hmm, this is a, a trend we, we need, really need to monitor. And then we launched a bigger note in June. And we were still kind of on the sidelines in terms of like, we're, you know, we, we, our view is basically that this was still in the kind of that fad camp. And then we tracked the data closely, both both the, this uh, you know in, in person uh, store check analysis, and we overlaid that with web traffic analysis. As, and, and the data is just just it's hard to ignore. Yeah. And then we obviously read uh, CNBC's article in late December, just quantifying the revenues. 
of Stanley, 750 million projected in in 2023. I thought it might have been a couple hundred million. So right. that that led us back to a, you know another fact finding mission with our our store checks in, in late December after Christmas, kind of confirming that. It's hard to say that this is a fad, but but this is a is it's definitely a Johnny come lately or a flavor of the week. Category. Well, we we've put together a nice uh, chart, uh, Brian, of all of the trendy water bottles over the years, because this is really just the latest chapter and one that goes all the way back to you could say the Nalgene ten or fifteen years ago. There it is, Nalgene, the Contigo, the Camelback, the Swell. Uh, you know, I think I have every single one of these, including the Yeti, which now I feel like I can't wear because uh, use because people will just laugh at me. But I guess my larger question for Yeti as the company itself, uh, let me check the market cap again here, $4 billion still. The risk to me, it seems, isn't so much whether the Stanley Cup is a hit product. Um, it's the risk that Yeti also was a hit product and is no more. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, this is not a call against Yeti per se. We're, we're strictly moving to the sidelines here. Yeti, Yeti basically didn't have drinkware until 2014. And it turned it from a $0 business to a, it's trending to about a billion dollars this year. So it's really stood the test of time during this. I mean, like your, your, your comment of back to analogy back in the seventies when folks were using that to go out camping and then, you know, even Hydroflask, which my analyst, uh, or which my colleague, uh, Susan Anderson covers covering Helen of Troy, that's kind of stood the, te- the test of time too. Um, I, we write in the note that we actually think Yeti is benefiting from this halo effect um, because uh, the, the, the associates at Dick's we spoke to kind of said that when Stanley's were out of stock, they were kind of falling back per se on Yeti. And sure. I think Yeti's an incredible brand and a marketing machine. I just think Stanley has really been a re- reinvigorated with its marketing over the last couple of years. It, you know, I looked into it. Stanley is privately held. I think it was PMI, which was then bought by Hanny a couple of years ago. Um, so there's no real direct investment play there. But so the right. question would be, can Yeti retain a $4 billion valuation uh, predicated on, yes, the cups, but also obviously the coolers were their real uh, kind of innovation differentiation point. Um, Maybe there again, people, everyone who is going to buy one has one now, and we see how fickle the market is and the consumer moves on to the next thing. Yeah, totally fair points. I mean, I think Yeti's done a tremendous job of stoking interest in products they've had around forever. I mean, they launched in 2006 with the, the cooler. Um, so they've, they've done a great job and, and every year they, they launch anywhere from four to six or eight limited edition colors. I think Stanley's kind of taken a page out of Yeti's playbook here in terms of, you know, launching the limited edition colors with the, the rose hue for Valentine's day, the, 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 the frenzy you were talking about with, with, uh, with target and Galentine's day. Um, so I don't think this is necessarily an indictment on Yeti. I just think in, in the current context of the consumer environment, you have student loans resuming, you have auto loans and new car loans at all time highs, you have, mm-hmm. you know, credit card debt at all time highs. It's it's just a tougher environment to compete in. Yeah. And this is the biggest competitive onslaught Yeti's ever seen in our view. Not to mention the Gen Z kind of analysts who follow these trends say, because of course, once Kelly finds out it's officially over, okay, I still have my tall Ugg boots and everything else that's uncool. So they actually think there's no way the Stanley really gets much bigger than it is right now with you and I sitting here talking about, they're saying even this new Owala water bottle, that's a Trove brand, another private company, that may be the next big thing. So um, perhaps that bails Yeti out. But again, I don't know. I guess we'll just have to find out how long their their staying power is with, again, a consumer whose tastes are changing all the time. 
Agreed. I mean, I think if you look at Stanley's web traffic, it, it, it averaged 150,000 per month in January of 22, and now it's 4.3 uh, million, wow. a 30-fold increase. So it, it, it's been absurd. So, But, but it's definitely, I think the $64,000 question is, is this a, a, a fad or a fall? And we're, we're le- leaning more towards fad here, just given the, the revenues and the trajectory. All right, Brian, love that you could quantify it and give us the granularity around it. We appreciate your time today. Thanks very much. Brian McNamara with uh, BCG Capital Markets. Coming up, the cookie monster. Google is about to kill cookies on its Chrome browsers, and the digital ad industry will never be the same. We've got the fallout for advertisers, for consumers, and for Google itself. That's next. As we head to break, check out some of the insurers. Allstate and Progressive are hitting all-time highs. AIG and Hartford, 16-year highs. And the Spider Insurance ETF, the KIE, just 1% away from its record high. And by the way... This could also be a problem for inflation. It's almost a pear trade. Until these stocks go down, we might not get too much relief on the core CPI. We're back after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to The Exchange. Keep an eye on shares of Eli Lilly hitting another all-time high today after they launched an online direct-to-consumer pharmacy. They say it will help improve access to its most popular drugs. ZepBound, for example, their weight loss drug approved by the FDA two months ago, lists for over $1,000 a month and would cost uninsured patients more than $500 a month. Well, if you have insurance, it can come down to about $25. Lilly shares surged 60% in 2023, good for their seventh straight annual gain and their 12th positive year in 13. They're up 1,700% since 2011. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for the CNBC News update. Tyler? 1,700%. That is something. Well, the Islamic State is claiming responsibility for two explosions that took place in Iran on Wednesday. The militant group said on their affiliate Telegram channel that two members detonated their explosive belts into the crowd at a memorial for an Iranian general killed by a U.S. drone strike four years ago. The explosion killed nearly 100 people. In response, Tehran promised to take revenge for what it calls the deadliest attack since the 1979 Islamic Revolution. Plastics are still widely present in food despite the known health risks. Consumer Reports just found out that of the 85 foods it tested, 84 contained a chemical used to make plastic more durable. The report does note that uh, none of the levels exceed limits set by the U.S. and and European regulators. The U.S. Mint has released several coins today to honor abolitionist Harriet Tubman. The commemorative collection includes $5 gold coins, $1 silver coins, and a half-dollar coin, all to commemorate the 200th anniversary of Harriet Tubman's birth. Kelly, back to you. Tyler, thanks. I'll see you soon. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, the owner of San Francisco's iconic Transamerica Pyramid is here in studio with what's behind his billion-dollar bet on the Bay Area and where he sees the biggest risks and opportunities in commercial real estate. We're back after this with the Dow Up 134.
Welcome back to The Exchange. West Coast-focused office REITs got hammered last year as tech firms struggled to get workers back to the office, with vacancy rates sitting at an all-time high. But Bullpen Capital co-founder and San Francisco resident Duncan Davidson says AI will revitalize the city as a tech hub. We just came through an historic bubble. It may have been caused by the Fed keeping interest rates too low too long, and certainly the lockdowns led to remote work. But a historic bubble always makes people think it can happen everywhere. But when the bubble's over, people recenter, and that's what we're seeing right now. We're coming back home again. Well, my next guest also sees a bright future there and is putting his money where his mouth is, investing a billion dollars to redevelop the Transamerica Pyramid Center. It's the second tallest skyscraper in San Francisco. Michael Schvo is here to discuss. He's founder, chairman, and CEO of Schvo. Welcome to you. Thank you. Thank Do you, you have other me. projects in San Francisco or California already? So we own the entire um, the entire city block in um, around the Transamerica Pyramid. It consists of three buildings. The pyramid that, that you know a private park and two and three Transamerica, and we own the Mandarin Oriental residences in um, in Beverly Hills that okay. we just completed. When so you bought that block all at the same time? It, it all had, at the same time. Had the pyramid. And this was in 2020. We bought it in 2020 in the midst of COVID when the city was in total lockdown and people thought it was probably crazy because you're buying kind of the the most known building in an office building when everybody was talking about the demise of office and obviously the demise of San Francisco. Come now 2024, we know that that was all. And what Premature. did you pay for it? Remind us if it's been Six, disclosed. Yeah, it's been disclosed $650 million. And did you, what was it worth? Or do you think that was a, a good discount to what it, was prob- it probably could be worth? I think I thought it was a great deal. Everybody that else probably thought it wasn't. We invested an extra, another $400 million to develop and to elevate that, that entire block. Um, today, you know, four years later, obviously it was, it was a good bet and a good success because the results of the leasing that we've been seeing there um, have proven that we've really? gotten we, we we broke every record um, outside New York City. Transamerica Pyramid today is one of the three most expensive buildings in the country huh. with leases, commercial leases over two hundred dollars a foot at the top of the building. That's surprising. In that same interview with Duncan Davidson yesterday, he, while saying he was bullish on the city's future, also acknowledged there's still a lot of work to do to kind of clean it up and get it back to where it once was. You're not experiencing that, or are you? From a city perspective, 100%. There are areas in San Francisco that definitely need to be handled. But there's today the tale of two cities, and it's in every city. We own a lot of super prime real estate in New York City, in Miami, in Chicago. The upper echelon of the market, the super prime real estate, and is, is showing great signs of, of, of leasing and at much higher rates pre-COVID. Remember, the Transamerica Pyramid today is renting at twice to two and a half times the rent rates that we were getting pre-COVID. Hmm. That is because there's a flight to quality. Obviously, we're elevating the building. We've invested a tremendous amount of money there. But tenants today want new product or, or historically important buildings that are operating as new buildings. And you've spent your whole career thinking this niche in office where it really needs to be much nicer and the, the whole market is, is kind of supporting that and that's the best performing part of it right now. Who are some of your lessees? Can you give us an example? And is the mix what it once was or has it shifted post-COVID? So there's been, first thing, there's been a, a lot of conversation about AI, right? So 70% of all money invested in AI companies in 2023 was into San Francisco-based companies. That's a really important fact because that's a big driver in what we're seeing today. 25% of leasing last year was done to AI or AI-related companies, correct. So at the pyramid, we're, because of, of the, the positioning of the building um, and being kind of the building in San Francisco, we're seeing kind of leaders of the industry. If it's in finance, AI, VCs. So we have, we have a mix of tenants because our floor plates are 
a pyramid. They go from, you know, 5,000 <laughs> square foot to 30,000 square foot. So there's a bit for everybody. But the, the connecting factor is that we're all dealing with leaders in the industry. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating to see how quickly these four, it, things can be turned around and also that it requires big investment in order to really upgrade these buildings. Where would you go next? You know, are, are there still big opportunities out there and maybe some parts that have discounts? We hear, for instance, about Los Angeles still sell, buildings selling at deep discounts. Has that phase passed now or where, where are you looking as a developer? You know, I think there's an interesting situation because it also ties back into interest rates, right? What we're seeing is, is we're seeing buildings that are, in essence, failing not necessarily because the buildings are bad buildings, but because there's a, there's a financing event. And when you borrowed money at 3% and I had to refinance at 6 you're dead in the water. There's almost nothing you could do. So we are seeing opportunities like that. We've bought debt. Uh, um, but, you know, we've been lucky because our portfolio is, is at, at 50% leverage at around 3% for the next eight years. So I nice. borrowed most of the money that we've done through COVID, mm -hmm. which, again, was was at the time uh, uh, looked at as, as a risky as a risky move, but obviously now, um, with where interest rates are, it was um, actually a brilliant time. Do you feel somewhat constrained in doing any projects from here because the financing would be so steep? So again, it, obviously, it, it, the, there, there's a, there's an issue with financing today, at least in the last two years. Now we're seeing the markets open up. Over the last quarter, we're, we're seeing markets open up because. In, in general, we don't take high leverage. We have the ability still to do, to do transaction. But there's no question that the market is slowed down due to, to, to the, the, expensive, the expensive nature of, of, of money right now. So we're, we're doing less. We're definitely done less over the last 12 months. But we are very active in the market because we would buy cash, you know, and we buy cash in certain deals that we believe are long-term holds. We and buy most of the stuff, sorry, most of the things we do because we're partnered with the German state pension fund. We'll buy for the next. It's a 50 year hold. Wow. That must be a per, that's permanent capital, a, that, a, as yes. they call it. So then w what should we, we be watching for commercial real estate? Do you think that the worst of it is this storm that we've all been anticipating is priced in? It's going to be slow for a while. Are we going to start seeing more people doing opportunistic things or is that just off the table because of rates? So I think and I've been I've been very vocal about this for for a long time. There's this notion that that real estate has to live forever. And I, I, I believe there's two buckets of real estate. There's real estate that is important real estate, again, Transamerica Pyramid being one of them. That's an historically important uh, uh, building that the opportunity there is to renovate and bring it, you know, it was ahead of its time for the first 50 years. It's going to be ahead of its time for the next 50 years. But then you have a, lot, a bunch of obsolete buildings. And there's this notion, let's take a bad office building and convert it to residential. You've been hearing right. a lot of that. That's like taking, you know, a, a bad milk and making milkshake out of it. It's still bad milkshake, right? So the, the notion is a lot of these B and C buildings that really have expired are going to have to be demolished. And I believe in the next 10 years, what we're going to see is... Um, areas and full blocks in cities that are just going to be demolished and rebuilt because there's a demand, there's, there is demand for new built, either for new built or amazing old buildings that are being yep. brought to the future. Iconic buildings or new built, but not the kind of the stuff in between. That's the stuff in between has, well, again, the stuff in between has, has always been dead, except in, you know, super blue markets. markets. And that's just because it's spillover. That's fascinating. Michael Chavot, thanks for joining us. Good My to get pleasure. your perspective today. Now we'll be thinking about the Transamerica building in a whole different way. Coming up, it's not just Santa stepping away from the cookies now that the holidays are over. There are big changes coming to Google and we'll tell you the impact on advertisers next. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Google 
disabling cookies for 1% or 30 million of its Chrome users today. Just the first step in Google's plan to stop using the website tracking technology entirely by year end. Why? What does it mean for Google's ad dominance and the rest of the advertising space? Deirdre Bosa has that for today's Tech Check. Welcome back, Deirdre. Hey, thank you, Kelly. Happy New Year to you. Let me answer the why first, and this is a little complicated. One, we live in a privacy-centric world now. Remember that Apple did this a few years ago. It was called ATT. It's App Tracking Transparency, and that upended the digital advertising landscape. Now Google is set to do this by the end of the year. It's rolling out slowly, affecting just 1% of Google Chrome browsers as of today. But again, it's going to affect all users by the end of the year. And the people I speak to say that this is a much bigger deal than what Apple did because Chrome makes up so much of a larger portion of the browser market than an Apple with, say, 65 to 70% versus Apple's 20%. And we saw what that resulted in. The year after Apple did that, Meta, was known as Facebook at the time, said that it would take a revenue hit of about $10 billion. So it's not surprising. Some of the smaller players, the digital advertisers, the marketers, the publishers, they're worried about this move. I spoke to Anthony Katzer. He heads up the IAB Tech Lab. That's an industry trade group. He said that advertisers are nowhere near ready for this change, the elimination of cookies, and that while the move is supposed to be a more privacy-centric approach to digital ads, it could actually lead to more friction and end up having users give up even more data. Have a listen. More and more sites are going to ask for registration data. They're going to ask for email. They're going to ask for your phone number. They may ask for your home address. Because with, with this advent of signal loss, the cookie, um, they're going to seek new higher fidelity signals than in the past. And that will benefit some media companies. That will benefit some publishers, but publishers that are at scale. So, Kelly, we can talk more about the technology of this, but in terms of the user, there is an open question. Is this going to be good? You're going to get more privacy. Yes, but I don't know if you've noticed this. In some cases, you can't even use a website without first giving up your email address. I mean, I've seen it on my side with Pinterest and the Real Real. And they know that they won't be able to rely on cookies, so they want more data up front. And that can be an equally frustrating experience. Oh, interesting. I was hoping for the demise of those annoying cookie pop-ups, but now we'll just get annoying email pop-ups. Well, I know. You'll so. get something other annoying on the other side. Great. I'll keep going with fake email addresses, <laughs> I guess. Uh, Deirdre, thank you for now. We appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa. I haven't actually had the time or energy to come up with fake email addresses. Coming up, shares of RPM International, the maker of both professional and DIY products like Rust-Oleum. They're lowered today after disappointing earnings and lowered full-year sales guidance. But there's good news for dividend investors in that release. We will talk to the CEO next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Rust-Oleum owner RPM International are falling after they reported softer-than-expected earnings and revenue today and cut their full-year sales forecast. The stock is still up 14% in the past six months, and the company just raised its dividend by nearly 10% to $0.46 cents a share, marking its 50th consecutive year of dividend growth. And they expect global infrastructure and business spending to offset weakness in DIY consumer group going forward. Joining me to discuss is Frank Sullivan. He's the chairman and CEO of RPM International. Frank, it's nice to make your acquaintance. Welcome. Nice to meet you, Kelly. Happy New Year. And to you as well, what would you tell us about the economy from the business position you sit in? So RPM's a, a somewhat a microcosm of, of the U.S. economy and the broader global economy. Um, about half of our businesses serve commercial and industrial markets globally, and roughly 40% serve uh, North American DIY markets. 
And so if it is infrastructure, uh, if it is industrial capital spending, where we are really well positioned with our construction products group and our performance coatings group, we're seeing really strong growth, uh, mid-single digit unit volume growth, uh, pricing power, and really good leverage to the bottom line. The flip side is anything that's touched housing over the last year struggled. Hmm. And so better than half of our specialty products group directly or indirectly manufactures wood stains, finishes, and coatings that go into residential construction. So think of wood, uh, wood doors, windows, sashes, trim, and then our consumer DIY businesses as well. So but we are in a multi-decade uh, low for housing turnover, and that's impacted our results. That, thank you for clarifying that, Frank, because it's fascinating to me that we have the home building stocks at all-time highs. Sentiment around the group has never been better, and yet you're talking about softness. So for you guys, the, key, the real key is turnover. So maybe is it turnover of just new homes or is it turnover of the entire housing market? Turnover of the, uh, the entire housing market. So as, as everyone knows, when you get your house ready to sell, uh, you're fixing it up, patching, repairing, decorating. When you buy a new home, you're redecorating, adding on and decorating. And as I mentioned, we are at literally a multi-decade low in terms of housing turnover. People have been stuck in their homes because of the rapid rise in interest rates. As interest rate increases moderate and begin to decline, we see that picking back up. And as, uh, as that does so, you'll see a pickup in our consumer businesses perhaps as early as this spring. Hmm. Uh, and we expect our more industrial businesses to continue their strong performance. So maybe we could turn a corner this spring, especially if we start talking about more Fed cuts. Is that right? Because it's kind of in line what you're describing with a little bit of the consensus around Home Depot right now and some of those kinds of stocks. Absolutely. You know, the uh, consumers have been on the sidelines for manufactured goods uh, of all types, uh, including uh, a restoration and uh, paint products. And uh, that's going to change. You know, we'll be rounding easier comps. And again, you're going to see a housing market uh, that's going to get back to normal. And that will be really good for our consumer business. Does disinflation or even deflation pose a problem, even as you see volume rebounds potentially? No, we've got really strong brands, and we've been able to hang on to price uh, across all of our businesses. We tend to be the innovator uh, in all of our uh, product categories. Um, Rust-Oleum uh, introduced 2X. Uh, it is the leading spray paint in the North American market today. Uh, about 10 years ago, our chemists were able to put twice uh, the paint solids uh, in a single can. Hmm. And while some of our competitors have been able to match that in a single color here or there, nobody's been able to match it across the board. Uh, we introduced this year at Rust-Oleum a five-in-one spray cap, again, patented. Hmm. So we tend to be the innovator. Uh, our competitors are followers in almost all of our different product categories in DIY and in industrial markets. So it gives you pricing power uh, in terms of, of your value added. Sure. Uh, and it allows you to focus on margins with the introduction of new products as opposed to uh, talking about price with uh, old technology. No, innovation matters and spray paint. You, you're making me want to go do some project. I wanted to change the handles, my kitchen handle. thinking maybe they should be, you know, gray instead of black again or uh, do that spray paint chalkboard on the wall for one of the kids. <laughs> Absolutely. We have those products for you. Frank, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. And again, the dividend growth, a big attraction point for investors as well. Kelly, thank you very much. Frank Sullivan from RPM International. That does it for The Exchange. Thanks for your time today, but don't go anywhere. Next on Power Lunch, hybrids are hot, as we've been talking about. Tesla sales are cooling, and the shorts are coming for a Buffett favorite. Tyler is getting ready. We'll have details on the other side of the spring.
You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.